Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra, thank you for listening. Uh, the Three Imposters continues. We are going to start on the novel of The Dark Seal today. Uh, it's a little bit of a long one, so it's going to be going over the next two weeks. Um, thank you all so much for listening. I don't have a whole lot of stuff to talk about at the start, so let's go ahead and get into the story. The Novel of the Black Seal I must now give you some fuller particulars of my history. I am the daughter of a civil engineer, Stephen Lally by name, who was so unfortunate as to die suddenly at the outset of his career and before he had accumulated sufficient means to support his wife and her two children. My mother contrived to keep the small household going on resources which must have been incredibly small. We lived in a remote country village because most of the necessaries of life were cheaper than in a town, but even so we were brought up with the severest economy. My father was a clever and well-read man and left behind him a small but select collection of books containing the best Greek, Latin, and English classics, and these books were the only amusement we possessed. My brother, I remember, learned Latin out of Descartes' meditations, and I, in place of the little tales which children are usually told to read, had nothing more charming than a translation of the Justa Romanorum. We grew up thus, quiet and studious children, and in course of time my brother provided for himself in the manner I have mentioned. I continued to live at home, my poor mother had become an invalid and demanded my continual care, and about two years ago she died after many months of painful illness. My situation was a terrible one. The shabby furniture barely sufficed to pay the debts I had been forced to contract, and the books I dispatched to my brother knowing how he would value them. I was absolutely alone. I was aware how poorly my brother was paid, and though I came up to London in the hopes of finding employment with the understanding that he would defray my expenses, I swore it should only be for a month, and that if I could not in that time find some work, I would starve rather than deprive him of the few miserable pounds he had laid by for his day of trouble. I took a little room in a distant suburb, the cheapest that I could find. I lived on bread and tea, and I spent my time in vain answering of advertisements and vainer walks to addresses I had noted. Day followed on day and week on week, and still I was unsuccessful, till at last the term I had appointed drew to a close, and I saw before me the grim prospect of slowly dying of starvation. My landlady was good-natured in her way. She knew the slenderness of my means, and I am sure that she would not have turned me out of doors. It remained for me then to go away and to try and die in some quiet place. It was winter then, and a thick white fog gathered in the early part of the afternoon, becoming more dense as the day wore on. It was a Sunday, I remember, and the people of the house were at chapel. At about three o'clock I crept out and walked away as quickly as I could, for I was weak from abstinence. The white mist wrapped all the streets in silence, and a hard frost had gathered thick upon the bare branches of the trees, and frost crystals glittered on the wooden fences and on the cold, cruel ground beneath my feet. I walked on, turning to right and left in utter haphazard, without caring to look up at the names of the streets, and all that I remember of my walk on that Sunday afternoon seems but the broken fragments of an evil dream. In a confused vision I stumbled on through roads half-town and half-country, gray fields melting into the cloudy world of mist on one side of me, and on the other, comfortable villas with a glow of firelight flickering on the walls. But all unreal, red-brick walls and lighted windows, vague trees and glimmering country— 
gas lamps beginning to star the white shadows, the vanishing perspectives of the railway line beneath high embankments, the green and red of the signal lamps, all these were but momentary pictures flashed on my tired brain and senses numbed by hunger. Now and then I would hear a quick step ringing on the iron road, and men would pass me well wrapped up, walking fast for the sake of warmth, and no doubt eagerly for tasting the pleasures of a glowing hearth, with curtains tightly drawn about the frosted panes, and the welcomes of their friends. But as the early evening darkened and night approached, foot passengers got fewer and fewer, and I passed through street after street alone. In the white silence I stumbled on, as desolate as if I trod the streets of a buried city, and as I grew more weak and exhausted, something of the horror of death was folding thickly round my heart. Suddenly, as I turned a corner, someone accosted me courteously beneath the lamppost, and I heard a voice asking if I could kindly point the way to Avon Road. At the sudden shock of human accents, I was prostrated, and my strength gave way, and I fell all huddled on the sidewalk, and wept and sobbed and laughed in violent hysteria. I had gone out prepared to die, and as I stepped across the threshold that had sheltered me, I consciously bade adieu to all hopes and all remembrances. The door clanged behind me with the noise of thunder, and I felt that an iron curtain had fallen on the brief passages of my life, and that henceforth I was to walk a little way in a world of gloom and shadow. I entered on the stage of the first act of death. Then came my wandering in the mist, the whiteness wrapping all things, the void streets and muffled silence, till when that voice spoke to me, it was as if I had died and life returned to me. In a few minutes I was able to compose my feelings, and as I rose, I saw that I was confronted by a middle-aged gentleman of specious appearance, neatly and correctly dressed. He looked at me with an expression of great pity, but before I could stammer out my ignorance of the neighborhood, for indeed I had not the slightest notion of where I had wandered, he spoke. "'My dear madam,' he said, "'you seem in some terrible distress. You cannot think of how you alarmed me, but may I inquire the nature of your trouble? I assure you that you can safely confide in me.' "'You are very kind,' I replied, "'but I fear there is nothing to be done. My condition seems a hopeless one.' "'Oh, nonsense, nonsense! You are too young to talk like that. Come!' "'Let us walk down here, and you must tell me your difficulty. "'Perhaps I may be able to help you.' "'There was something very soothing and persuasive in his manner, "'and as we walked together, I gave him an outline of my story "'and told of the despair that had oppressed me almost to death. "'You were wrong to give in so completely,' he said when I was silent. "'A month is too short a time in which to feel one's way in London. "'London, let me tell you, Miss Lally, does not lie open and undefended. "'It is a fortified place.' "'fossed and double-moated with curious intricacies. "'As must always happen in large towns, "'the conditions of life have become hugely artificial. "'No mere simple palisade is run up to oppose the man or woman "'who would take the place by storm, "'but serried lines of subtle contrivances, mines, and pitfalls "'which it needs a strange skill to overcome. "'You, in your simplicity, fancied you had only to shout "'for these walls to sink into nothingness, "'but the time is gone for such startling victories as these. "'Take courage,' "'You will learn the secret of success before very long.' "'Alas, sir,' I replied, "'I have no doubt your conclusions are correct, "'but at the present moment I seem to be in a fair way to die of starvation. "'You spoke of a secret. "'For heaven's sake, tell it me if you have any pity for my distress.' "'He laughed genially. "'There lies the strangeness of it all. "'Those who know the secret cannot tell it if they would. "'It is 
positively as ineffable as the central doctrine of Freemasonry. But I may say this, that you yourself have penetrated at least the outer husk of the mystery. And he laughed again. Pray, do not jest with me, I said. What have I done? I am so far ignorant that I have not the slightest idea of how my next meal is to be provided. Excuse me, you ask what you have done. You have met me. Come, we will fence no longer. I see you have self-education, the only education which is not infinitely pernicious, and I am in want of a governess for my two children. I have been a widower for some years. My name is Greg. I offer you the post I have named, and shall we say a salary of a hundred a year? I could only stutter out my thanks, and slipping a card with his address and a banknote by way of earnest into my hand, Mr. Gregg bade me goodbye, asking me to call in a day or two. Such was my introduction to Professor Gregg, and can you wonder that the remembrance of despair and the cold blast that had blown from the gates of death upon me made me regard him as a second father? Before the close of the week, I was installed in my new duties— the professor had leased an old brick manor house in a western suburb of London, and here, surrounded by pleasant lawns and orchards and soothed with the murmur of the ancient elms that rocked their boughs above the roof, the new chapter of my life began. Knowing as you do the nature of the professor's occupations, you will not be surprised to hear that the house teemed with books, and cabinets full of strange and even hideous objects filled every available nook in the vast low rooms. Greg was a man whose one thought was for knowledge, and I too, before long, caught something of his enthusiasm, and strove to enter into his passion for research. In a few months I was perhaps more his secretary than the governess of the two children, and many a night have I sat at the desk in the glow of the shaded lamp while he, pacing up and down in the rich gloom of the firelight, dictated to me the substance of his textbook of ethnology. But amidst these more sober and accurate studies, I always detected something hidden, a longing and desire for some object to which he did not allude, and now and then he would break short in what he was saying, and lapse into reverie, entranced as it seemed to me by some distant prospect of adventurous discovery. The textbook was at last finished, and we began to receive proofs from the printers, which were entrusted to me for a first reading, and then underwent the final revision of the professor. All the while, his weariness of the actual business he was engaged on increased, and it was with the joyous laugh of a schoolboy when term is over that he one day handed me a copy of the book. There, he said, I have kept my word. I promised to write it, and it is done with. Now I shall be free to live for stranger things. I confess it, Miss Lally, I covet the renown of Columbus. You will, I hope, see me play the part of an explorer. Surely, I said, there is little left to explore. "'You have been born a few hundred years too late for that.' "'I think you're wrong,' he replied. "'There are still, depend upon it, "'quaint, undiscovered countries and continents of strange extent. "'Ah, oh, Miss Lally, believe me, "'we stand amidst sacraments and mysteries full of awe, "'and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. "'Life, believe me, is no simple thing, "'no mass of grey matter and conjuries of veins and muscles "'to be laid naked by the surgeon's knife. "'Man is the secret which I am about to explore.' and before I can discover him, I must cross over weltering seas indeed, and oceans in the mists of many thousand years. You know the myths of the lost Atlantis. What if it be true, and I am destined to be called the discoverer of the wonderful land? I could see excitement boiling beneath his words, and in his face was the heat of the hunter. Before me stood a man who believed himself summoned to tourney with the unknown. 
A pang of joy possessed me when I reflected that I was to be in a way associated with him in the adventure, and I too burned with the lust of the chase, not pausing to consider that I knew not what we were to unshadow. The next morning, Professor Gregg took me into his inner study, where, ranged against the wall, stood a nest of pigeonholes, every drawer neatly labeled, and the results of years of toil classified in a few feet of space. Here, he said, is my life. Here are all the facts which I have gathered together with so much pains, and yet it is all nothing. No, nothing to what I am about to attempt. Look at this, said he, and he took me to an old bureau, a piece fantastic and faded, which stood in a corner of the room. He unlocked the front and opened one of the drawers. A few scraps of paper, he went on pointing to the drawer, and a lump of black stone, rudely annotated with queer marks and scratches. That is all that drawer holds. Here, you see, is an old envelope with a dark red stamp of twenty years ago, but I have penciled a few lines at the back. Here is a sheet of manuscript, and here are some cuttings from obscure local journals. And if you ask me the subject matter of the collection, it will not seem extraordinary. A servant girl at a farmhouse who disappeared from her place and has never been heard of, a child supposed to have slipped down some old working on the mountains, some queer scribbling on a limestone rock, a man murdered with a blow from a strange weapon. Such is the scent I have to go upon. Yes, as you say, there is a ready explanation for all this. The girl may have run away to London or Liverpool or New York. The child may be at the bottom of the disused shaft, and the letters on the rock may be the idle whims of some vagrant. Yes, yes, I admit all that, but I know I hold the true key. Look. And he held me out a slip of yellow paper. Characters found inscribed on a limestone rock on the Grey Hills, I read, and then there was a word erased, presumably the name of a county, and a date some fifteen years back. Beneath was traced a number of uncouth characters, shaped somewhat like wedges or daggers, as strange and outlandish as the Hebrew alphabet. "'Now the seal,' said Professor Gregg, and he handed me the black stone, a thing about two inches long and something like an old-fashioned tobacco stopper much enlarged. I held it up to the light and saw to my surprise the characters on the paper repeated on the seal. "'Yes,' said the professor, "'they are the same, and the marks on the limestone rock were made fifteen years ago with some red substance, and the characters on the seal are four thousand years old at least, perhaps much more.' "'Is it a hoax?' I said. "'No, I anticipated that. "'I was not to be led to give my life to a practical joke. "'I have tested the matter very carefully. "'Only one person besides myself knows of the mere existence of that black seal. "'Besides, there are other reasons which I cannot enter into now.' "'But what does it all mean?' I said. "'I cannot understand as to what conclusion all this leads. "'My dear Miss Lally, that is a question I would rather leave unanswered for some little time.' Perhaps I shall never be able to say what secrets are held here in solution. A few vague hints, the outlines of village tragedies, a few marks done with red earth upon a rock and an ancient seal. Queer set of data to go upon. Half a dozen pieces of evidence, and twenty years before even so much could be got together. And who knows what mirage or terra incognita may be beyond all this. I look across deep waters, Miss Lally, and the land beyond may be but a haze after all. But still, I believe it is not so, and a few months will show whether I am right or wrong. He left me, and alone I endeavored to fathom the mystery, wondering to what goal such eccentric odds and ends of evidence could lead. 
I myself am not wholly devoid of imagination, and I had reason to respect the professor's solidity of intellect. Yet I saw in the contents of the drawer but the materials of fantasy, and vainly tried to conceive what theory could be founded on the fragments that had been placed before me. Indeed, I could discover in what I had heard and seen but the first chapter of an extravagant romance, and yet deep in my heart I burned with curiosity, and day after day I looked eagerly in Professor Gregg's face for some hint of what was to happen. It was one evening after dinner that the word came. "'I hope you can make your preparations without much trouble,' he said suddenly to me. "'We shall be leaving here in a week's time.' "'Really?' I said in astonishment. "'Where are we going?' I have taken a country house in the west of England, not far from Carmine, a quiet little town, once a city and the headquarters of a Roman legion. It is very dull there, but the country is pretty, and the air is wholesome. I detected a glint in his eyes, and guessed that this sudden move had some relation to our conversation of a few days before. I shall just take a few books with me, said Professor Gregg, that is all. Everything else will remain here for our return." "'I've got a holiday,' he went on, smiling at me, "'and I shan't be sorry to be quit for a time of my old bones and stones and rubbish. "'Do you know,' he went on, "'I've been grinding away at facts for thirty years. "'It is time for fancies.' "'The days passed quickly. "'I could see that the professor was all quivering with suppressed excitement, "'and I could scarce credit the eager appetence of his glance "'as we left the old manor house behind us and began our journey.' We set out at midday, and it was in the dusk of the evening that we arrived at a little country station. I was tired and excited, and the drive through the lanes seems all a dream. First, the deserted streets of a forgotten village, while I heard Professor Gregg's voice talking of the Augustan Legion and the clash of arms, and all the tremendous pomp that followed the eagles. Then the broad river swimming to full tide with the last afterglow glimmering duskily in the yellow water, the wide meadows, and the cornfields whitening, and the deep lane winding on the slope between the hills and the water. At last we began to ascend, and the air grew rarer. I looked down and saw the pure white mist tracking the outline of the river like a shroud, and a vague and shadowy country, imaginations and fantasy of swelling hills and hanging woods, and half-shaped outlines of hills beyond, stand in the distance the glare of the furnace fire on the mountain, growing by turns a pillar of shining flame, and fading to a dull point of red. We were slowly mounting a carriage drive, and then there came to me the cool breath and the scent of the great wood that was above us. I seemed to wander in its deepest depths, and there was the sound of trickling water, the scent of the green leaves and the breath of the summer night. The carriage stopped at last, and I could scarcely distinguish the form of the house as I waited a moment at the pillared porch and the rest of the evening seemed a dream of strange things bounded by the great silence of the wood and the valley and the river. The next morning, when I awoke and looked out of the bow window of the big old-fashioned bedroom, I saw under a gray sky a country that was still all mystery. The long, lovely valley, with the river winding in and out below, crossed in mid-vision by a medieval bridge of vaulted and buttressed stone, the clear presence of the rising ground beyond, and the woods that I had only seen in shadow the night before seemed tinged with enchantment, and the soft breath of air that sighed in at the opened pane was like no other wind. I looked across the valley and beyond, hill followed on hill as wave on wave, and here a faint blue pillar of smoke rose still in the morning air from the chimney of an ancient gray farmhouse. There was a rugged height crowned with dark firs, 
and in the distance I saw the white streak of a road that climbed and vanished into some unimagined country. But the boundary of all was a great wall of mountain, vast in the west, and ending like a fortress with a steep ascent and a domed tumulus clear against the sky. I saw Professor Gregg walking up and down the terrace path below the windows, and it was evident that he was reveling in the sense of liberty and the thought that he had for a while bidden goodbye to task work. When I joined him, there was exultation in his voice as he pointed out the sweep of valley and the river that wound beneath the lovely hills. "'Yes,' he said, "'it is a strangely beautiful country, and to me, at least, it seems full of mystery. You have not forgotten the drawer I showed you, Miss Lally? No, and you have guessed that I have come here not merely for the sake of the children and the fresh air?' "'I think I have guessed as much as that,' I replied. "'But you must remember I do not know the mere nature of your investigations. And as for the connection between the search and this wonderful valley, it is past my guessing.' He smiled queerly at me. "'You must not think I am making a mystery for the sake of mystery,' he said. "'I do not speak out, because, so far, there's nothing to be spoken. "'Nothing definite, I mean. "'Nothing that can be set down in hard black and white, "'as dull and sure and irreproachable as any blue book. "'And then I have another reason. "'Many years ago a chance paragraph in a newspaper caught my attention "'and focused in an instant the vagrant thoughts and half-formed fancies of my many— idle and speculative hours into a certain hypothesis. I saw at once that I was treading on a thin crust. My theory was wild and fantastic in the extreme, and I would not, for any consideration, have written a hint of it for publication. But I thought that in the company of scientific men like myself, men who knew the course of discovery and were aware that the gas that blazes and flares in the gin palace was once a wild hypothesis, I thought that with such men as these I might hazard my dream.' let us say Atlantis or the Philosopher's Stone or what you like, without danger of ridicule. I found I was grossly mistaken. My friends looked blankly at me and at one another, and I could see something of pity and something also of insolent contempt in the glances they exchanged. One of them called on me the next day and hinted that I must be suffering from overwork and brain exhaustion. In plain terms, I said, you think I'm going mad. I think not. And I showed him out with some little appearance of heat. Since that day I vowed that I would never whisper the nature of my theory to any living soul. To no one but yourself have I ever shown the contents of that drawer. After all, I may be following a rainbow. I may have been misled by the play of coincidence. But as I stand here, in this mystic hush and silence amidst the woods and wild hills, I am more than ever sure that I am hot on the scene. Come, it is time we went in. To me, in all this, there was something both of wonder and excitement. I knew how, in his ordinary work, Professor Gregg moved step by step, testing every inch of the way, and never venturing on assertion without proof that was impregnable. Yet I divined more from his glance and the vehemence of his tone than from the spoken word that he had in his every thought the vision of the almost incredible continually with him. And I, who was with some share of imagination no little of a skeptic, offended at a hint of the marvelous, could not help asking myself whether he was cherishing a monomania and barring out from this one subject all the scientific method of his other life. Yet with this image of mystery haunting my thoughts, I surrendered wholly to the charm of the country. Above the faded house on the hillside began the great forest, a long dark line seen from the opposing hills stretching above the river for many a mile from north to south, and yielding in the north to even wilder country, 
barren and savage hills and ragged common land, a territory all strange and unvisited, and more unknown to Englishmen than the very heart of Africa. The space of a couple of steep fields alone separated the house from the wood, and the children were delighted to follow me up the long alleys of undergrowth, between smooth bleached walls of shining beech to the highest point in the wood, whence one looked on one side across the river, and the rise and fall of the country to the great western mountain wall, and on the other, over the surge and dip of the myriad trees of the forest, over level meadows and the shining yellow sea to the faint coast beyond. I used to sit at this point on the warm sunlit turf which marked the track of the Roman road, while the two children raced about, hunting for the windberries that grew here and there on the banks. Here, beneath the deep blue sky and the great clouds, rolling like olden galleons with sails full-bellied, from the seas to the hills, as I listened to the whispered charm of the great and ancient wood, I lived solely for delight, and only remembered strange things when we would return to the house and find Professor Gregg either shut up in the little room he had made his study, or else pacing the terrace with the look, patient and enthusiastic, of the determined seeker. One morning, some eight or nine days after our arrival, I looked out of my window and saw the whole landscape transmuted before me. The clouds had dipped low and hidden the mountains in the west, and a southern wind was driving the rain in shifting pillars up the valley, and the little brooklet that burst the hill below the house now raged, a red torrent, down to the river. We were, perforce, obliged to keep snug within doors, and when I had attended to my pupils, I sat down in the morning room where the ruins of a library still encumbered an old-fashioned bookcase. I had inspected the shelves once or twice, but their contents had failed to attract me. Volumes of eighteenth-century sermons, an old book on farriery, a collection of poems by persons of quality, Prido's Connection, and an odd volume of Pope were the boundaries of the library, and there seemed little doubt that everything of interest or value had been removed. Now, however, in desperation, I began to re-examine the musty sheepskin and calf bindings, and found much to my delight a fine old quarto printed by the Stefani containing the three books of Pompeius Mela, De Situ Orbis, and other of the ancient geographers. I knew enough of Latin to steer my way through an ordinary sentence, and I soon became absorbed in the odd mixture of fact and fancy, light shining on a little of the space of the world, and beyond mist and shadow and awful forms. Glancing over the clear printed pages, my attention was caught by the heading of a chapter in Solinus, and I read the words, the wonders of the people that inhabit the inner parts of Libya, and of the stone called Sixty Stone. The odd title attracted me, and I read on. This folk, I translated to myself, dwells in remote and secret places, and celebrates foul mysteries on savage hills. Nothing have they in common with men save the face, and the customs of humanity are wholly strange to them. And they hate the sun. They hiss rather than speak. Their voices are harsh and not to be heard without fear. They boast of a certain stone which they call Sixty Stone, for they say that it displays sixty characters, and this stone has a secret unspeakable name, which is Ixxar. I laughed at the queer inconsequence of all this, and thought it fit for Sinbad the Sailor or other of the supplementary knights. When I saw Professor Gregg in the course of the day, I told him of my find in the bookcase, and the fantastic rubbish I had been reading. To my surprise, he looked up at me with an expression of great interest. 
"'That is really very curious,' he said. "'I've never thought it worthwhile to look into the old geographers, "'and I dare say I've missed a good deal. "'Ah, that is the passage, is it? "'It seems a shame to rob you of your entertainment, "'but I really think I must carry off the book.' "'The next day, the professor called to me to come to this study. "'I found him sitting at a table in the full light of the window, "'scrutinizing something very attentively with a magnifying glass. "'Ah, Miss Lally,' he began, I want to use your eyes. This glass is pretty good, but not like my old one that I left in town. Would you mind examining the thing yourself and telling me how many characters are cut on it? He handed me the object in his hand, and I saw that it was the black seal he had shown me in London, and my heart began to beat with the thought that I was presently to know something. I took the seal, and holding it up to the light, checked off the grotesque dagger-shaped characters one by one. "'I make sixty-two, I said at last. "'Sixty-two? Nonsense. It's impossible. Oh, "'I see what you have done. You have counted that and that.' "'And you pointed to two marks, which I had certainly taken as letters with the rest. "'Yes, yes,' Professor Gregg went on. "'But those are obvious scratches done accidentally. "'I saw that at once. Oh, yes, then, that's quite right. "'Thank you very much, Miss Lally.' "'I was going away, rather disappointed at my having been called in "'merely to count a number of marks on the black seal,' when suddenly there flashed into my mind what I had read in the morning. "'But, Professor Gregg,' I cried, breathless, "'the seal! The seal! Why, it is the stone Hexacontolithos that Salinas writes of! It is Ixixar! It is Ixixar! "'Yes,' he said, "'I suppose it is. Or it may be a mere coincidence. It never does to be too sure. You know, it never does to be too sure, you know, in these matters. Coincidence killed the professor.' I went away, puzzled by what I had heard, and as much as ever at a loss to find the ruling clue in this maze of strange evidence. For three days the bad weather lasted, changing from driving rain to a dense mist, fine and dripping, and we seemed to be shut up in a white cloud that veiled all the world away from us. All the while, Professor Gregg was darkling in his room, unwilling, it appeared, to dispense confidences or talk of any kind, and I heard him walking to and fro with a quick, impatient step, as if he were in some way wearied of inaction. The fourth morning was fine, and at breakfast the professor said briskly, "'We want some extra help around the house, a boy of fifteen or sixteen, you know. There are a lot of little odd jobs that take up the maid's time, which a boy could do much better.' "'The girls have not complained to me in any way,' I replied. "'Indeed, Anne said there was much less work than in London, owing to there being so little dust.' "'Oh, yes, they are very good girls, but I think we should do much better with a boy. "'In fact, that is what has been bothering me for the last two days.' "'Bothering you?' I said in astonishment, "'for as a matter of fact, the professor never took the slightest interest in the affairs of the house. "'Yes,' he said, "'the weather, you know. "'I really couldn't go out in that scotch mist. "'I don't know the country very well, and I should have lost my way, "'but I'm going to get the boy this morning. "'But how do you know that there is such a boy as you want anywhere about?' "'Oh, I have no doubt as to that. "'I may have to walk a mile or two at the most, "'but I am sure to find just the boy I require.' "'I thought the professor was poking, "'but though his tone was airy enough, "'there was something grim and set about his features that puzzled me. "'He got his stick and stood at the door "'looking meditatively before him, "'and as I passed through the hall, he called to me. "'By the way, Miss Lally, "'there was one thing I wanted to say to you. "'I dare say you may have heard "'that some of these country lads are not over-bright.' "'Idiotic would be a harsh word to use, and they are usually called naturals or something of the kind. "'I hope you won't mind if the boy I am after should turn out not too keen-witted. 
He will be perfectly harmless, of course, and blacking boots doesn't need much mental effort. With that, he was gone, striding up the road that led to the wood, and I remained stupefied. And then, for the first time, my astonishment was mingled with a sudden note of terror, arising I knew not whence, and all unexplained, even to myself. And yet I felt about my heart for an instant something of the chill of death, and that shapeless, formless dread of the unknown that is worse than death itself. I tried to find courage in the sweet air that blew up from the sea, and in the sunlight after rain, but the mystic wood seemed to darken around me, and the vision of the river coiling between the reeds and the silver gray of the ancient bridge fashioned in my mind symbols of vague dread, as the mind of a child fashions terror from things harmless and familiar. Two hours later, Professor Gregg returned. I met him as he came down the road and asked quietly if he had been able to find a boy. Oh, yes, he answered. I found one easily enough. His name is Jervis Craddock, and I expect he will make himself very useful. His father has been dead for many years, and the mother, whom I saw, seemed very glad at the prospect of a few shillings extra coming in on Saturday nights. As I expected, he's not too sharp, as fits at times, the mother said, but as he will not be trusted with the china, that doesn't matter much, does it? And he is not in any way dangerous, you know, merely a little weak. When is he coming? Tomorrow morning at eight o'clock. Anne will show him what he has to do and how to do it. At first he will go home every night, but perhaps it may ultimately turn out more convenient for him to sleep here and only go home for Sundays. I found nothing to say to all this. Professor Gregg spoke in a quiet tone of matter of fact, as indeed was warranted by the circumstance, and yet I could not quell my sensation of astonishment at the whole affair. I knew that in reality no assistance was wanted in the housework, and the professor's prediction that the boy he was to engage might prove a little simple, followed by so exact a fulfillment, struck me as bizarre in the extreme. The next morning, I heard from the housemaid that the boy Craddock had come at eight, and that she had been trying to make him useful. "'He doesn't seem quite all there, I don't think, miss,' was her comment, and later in the day I saw him helping the old man who worked in the garden." He was a youth of about fourteen, with black hair and black eyes, and an olive skin, and I saw at once from the curious vacancy of his expression that he was mentally weak. He touched his forehead awkwardly as I went by, and I heard him answering the gardener in a queer, harsh voice that caught my attention. It gave me the impression of someone speaking deep below, under the earth, and there was a strange sibilance, like the hissing of the phonograph as the pointer travels over the cylinder." I heard that he seemed anxious to do what he could, and was quite docile and obedient, and Morgan the gardener, who knew his mother, assured me he was perfectly harmless. "'He's always been a bit queer,' he said, "'and no wonder, after what his mother went through before he was born. I did know his father, Thomas Craddock, well, and a very fine workman he was too, indeed. He got something wrong with him and lungs owing to working in the wet woods, and never got over it, and went off quite sudden-like. And they do say as how Mrs. Craddock was quite off her head. Anyhow, she was found by Mr. Hillier, Ty Koch, all crouched up on the grey hills over there, crying and weeping like a lost soul. And Jervis, he was born about eight months afterwards, and as I was saying, he was a bit queer always, and they do say when he could scarcely walk, he would frighten the other children into fits with the noises he would make. A word in the story had stirred up some remembrance within me, and vaguely curious, I asked the old man where the grey hills were. Up there, he said with the same gesture he had used before. He up past the fox and hounds and through the forest by the old ruins. It's a good five mile from here and a strange sort of place. 
The poorest soil between this and Monmouth, they do say. Oh, it's good feed for sheep. Yes, it was a sad thing for poor Mrs. Craddock. The old man turned to his work, and I strolled on down the path between the espalier, gnarled and gouty with age, thinking of the story I had heard, and groping for the point in it that had some key to my memory. In an instant it came before me. I had seen the phrase, "'Gray Hills,' on the slip of yellowed paper that Professor Gregg had taken from the drawer in his cabinet. Again I was seized with pangs of mingled curiosity and fear. I remembered the strange characters copied from the limestone rock, and then again their identity with the inscription on the age-old seal, and the fantastic fables of the Latin geographer. I saw beyond doubt that, unless coincidence had set all the scene and disposed all these bizarre events with curious art, I was to be a spectator of things far removed from the usual and customary traffic and jostle of life. Professor Gregg I noted day by day. He was hot on his trail, growing lean with eagerness, and in the evenings, when the sun was swimming on the verge of the mountains, he would pace the terrace to and fro with his eyes on the ground, while the mist grew white in the valley, and the stillness of the evening brought far voices near, and the blue smoke rose a straight column from the diamond-shaped chimney of the gray farmhouse, just as I had seen it on the first morning. I have told you I was of skeptical habit, but though I understood little or nothing, I began to dread, vainly proposing to myself the iterated dogmas of science that all life is material, and that in the system of things there is no undiscovered land even beyond the remotest stars, where the supernatural can find a footing. Yet there was struck in on this the thought that matter is as really awful and unknown as spirit, that science itself but dallies on the threshold, scarcely gaining more than a glimpse of the wonders of the inner place. There is one day that stands up from amidst the others as a grim red beacon, betokening evil to come. I was sitting on a bench in the garden, watching the boy Craddock weeding, when I was suddenly alarmed by a harsh and choking sound, like the cry of a wild beast in anguish, and I was unspeakably shocked to see the unfortunate lad standing in full view before me, his whole body quivering and shaking at short intervals as though shocks of electricity were passing through him, and his teeth grinding and foam gathering on his lips, and his face all swollen and blackened to a hideous mask of humanity. I shrieked with terror, and Professor Gregg came running, and as I pointed to Craddock, the boy, with one convulsive shudder, fell face forward and lay on the wet earth, his body writhing like a wounded blind worm, and an inconceivable babble of sounds bursting and rattling and hissing from his lips. He seemed to pour forth an infamous jargon with words, or what seemed like words, that might have belonged to a tongue dead since untold ages and buried deep beneath nilotic mud, or in the inmost recesses of the Mexican forest. For a moment the thought passed through my mind as my ears were still revolted with that infernal clamor. Surely this is the very speech of hell! And then I cried out again and again and ran away, shuddering to my inmost soul. I had seen Professor Gregg's face as he stooped over the wretched boy and raised him, and I was appalled by the glow of exaltation that shone on every lineament and feature. As I sat in my room with drawn blinds and my eyes hidden in my hands, I heard heavy steps beneath, and I was told afterwards that Professor Gregg had carried Craddock to his study and had locked the door. I heard voices murmur indistinctly, and I trembled to think of what might be passing within a few feet of where I sat. I longed to escape to the woods and sunshine, and yet I dreaded the sights that might confront me on the way, and at last 
As I held the handle of the door nervously, I heard Professor Gregg's voice calling to me with a cheerful ring. "'It's all right now, Miss Lally,' he said. "'The poor fellow has got over it, and I've been arranging for him to sleep here after tomorrow. Perhaps I may be able to do something for him.' "'Yes,' he said later. "'It was a very painful sight, and I don't wonder you were alarmed. We may hope that good food will build him up a little, but I'm afraid he will never be really cured.' and he affected the dismal and conventional air with which one speaks of hopeless illness, and yet beneath it I detected the delight that leapt up rampant within him and fought and struggled to find utterance. It was as if one glanced down on the even surface of the sea, clear and immobile, and saw beneath raging depths and a storm of contending billows. It was indeed to me a torturing and offensive problem that this man, who had so bounteously rescued me from the sharpness of death, and showed himself in all the relations of life, full of benevolence and pity and kindly forethought, should so manifestly be for once on the side of the demons, and take a ghastly pleasure in the torments of an afflicted fellow-creature. Apart, I struggled with the horned difficulty, and strove to find the solution, but without the hint of a clue. Beset by mystery and contradiction, I saw nothing that might help me, and I began to wonder whether, after all, I had not escaped from the white mist of the suburb at too dear a rate. I hinted something of my thought to the professor. I said enough to let him know that I was in the most acute perplexity, but the moment after regretted what I had done, when I saw his face contort with a spasm of pain. "'My dear Miss Lally,' he said, "'you surely do not wish to leave us. No, no, you would not do it.' You do not know how I rely on you, how confidently I go forward, assured that you are here to watch over my children. You, Miss Lally, are my rear guard, for let me tell you that the business in which I am engaged is not wholly devoid of peril. You have not forgotten what I said the first morning here. My lips are shut by an old and firm resolve, till they can open to utter no ingenious hypothesis or vague surmise, but irrefragable fact, as certain as a demonstration in mathematics. Think over it, Miss Lally. Not for a moment would I endeavor to keep you here against your own instincts, and yet I tell you frankly that I am persuaded that it is here, here amidst the woods, that your duty lies. I was touched by the eloquence of his tone, and by the remembrance that the man, after all, had been my salvation, and I gave him my hand on a promise to serve him loyally and without question. A few days later, the rector of our church, a little church, gray and severe and quaint, that hovered on the very banks of the river and watched the tide swim in return, came to see us, and Professor Gregg easily persuaded him to stay and share our dinner. Mr. Mayrick was a member of an antique family of squires, whose old manor house stood amongst the hills some seven miles away and thus rooted in the soil. The rector was a living store of all the old fading customs and lore of the country. His manor, genial with a deal of retired oddity, won on Professor Gregg, and towards the cheese, when a curious burgundy had begun its incantations, the two men glowed like the wine, and talked of philology with the enthusiasm of a burgess over the peerage. The parson was expounding the pronunciation of the Welsh double L, and producing sounds like the gurgle of his native brooks, when Professor Gregg struck in. "'By the way,' he said, "'there was a very odd word I met with the other day. You know, my boy, uh, poor Jervis Craddock.' Well, he has got the bad habit of talking to himself, and the day before yesterday, as I was walking in the garden here and heard him, he was evidently quite unconscious of my presence. A lot of what he said I couldn't make out, but one word struck me distinctly. It was such an odd sound, half sibilant, half guttural, 
and as quaint as those double L's you have been demonstrating. I do not know whether I can give you an idea of the sound. Ishak Shar is perhaps as near as I can get, but the K ought to be a Greek Kai or a Spanish J. Now, what does it mean in Welsh? In uh, Welsh, said the parson, there's no such word in Welsh, nor any word remotely resembling it. I know the book Welsh, as they call it, and the colloquial dialects as well as any man, but there's no word like that from Anglesey to Usk. Besides, none of the Craddocks speak a word of Welsh. It's dying out about here. Really? You interest me extremely, Mr. Merrick. I confess the word didn't strike me as having the Welsh ring, but I thought it might be some local corruption. No, I've never heard such a word or anything like it. Indeed, he added, smiling whimsically, if it belongs to any language, I should say it must be that of the fairies, the Talwith Teg, as we call them. And that is the end of part one of The Dark Seal by Arthur Mackin. We'll hit up part two tomorrow and wrap this, uh, not tomorrow, we're not doing this tomorrow. Uh, we'll hit up part two next week and wrap the story up. Um, and uh, other than that, I hope you are enjoying The Three Imposters. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to throw some support at the show, uh, you can support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash the weird tales podcast. Um, we have three different tiers right now. We've got a $1 tier for just general support. $3, uh, get you a thank you on the show and $10 get you access to a bonus feed where we are, where I am uh, reading the moonstone by Wilkie Collins. One of the first examples of the, of the detective genre. Uh, just at the end of January, we put out the end, the mo the inciting moment where, uh, the actual, uh, crime takes place, um, and the investigation, uh, begins and it's a really exciting time in the story. So, um, please check out the reignition theory, uh, and, um, which features me in one of the main roles. It's, it's a really good story. It is, uh, his, it is, uh. How how would I describe it? I would say historical fiction for a fictional world. Well, no, it's fictional history. How about we say that? It is fictional history of a fictional world and there's zombies. So anyway, um, uh, Marco Van Putin, thank you so much for your support. Ryan Patrick, thank you. Matthias Hansen, thank you so much. Alder Riley, thank you. Mark Vincent and Eric Braun and Chris Colley. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, I'm really very grateful for all the support that you throw. And even if you just throw like a dollar up there, like that helps the show. All of the money goes into the show. It's going towards paying the readers uh, for the upcoming Pride Month. And uh, I, it goes to pay the hosting fees and everything. There is not a dollar of it that goes into my pocket. So thank you all so much. Uh, and I hope you have a really great week. Da 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 da. Here's the bloops. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the... I could see that the professor was all quivering with suppressed excitement, and I could scarce credit the eager... Ap the Appetence? And I strolled on down the path between the... Looking that word up. And I was appalled by the glow of exaltation that <clears throat> there it is.